This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. People say you should never meet your heroes. But if you ask a little kid who their hero is, after they talk about their favorite Avenger, they'll probably say it's one of their parents. I think it's a sign of good parents if that doesn't change when the kid gets older and actually meets their parents as people. In this week's story, our teller shares with us how his father definitely started out a hero, but doesn't seem quite so heroic in retrospect. Recorded live at Theater on the Lake in Chicago in July 2019, Second Story is proud to present Dad. It was one of those games that can only be created when you're stoned out of your mind. I had to lie on my back and in my best falsetto sing the Mick Jagger song, Emotional Rescue, for as long as I could without laughing. Physical contact was strictly prohibited, so instead, everyone knelt over me and blew smoke in my mouth while I sang, and between the laughing and the coughing, it was hard to last more than 10 seconds. Listen, Scott, I want to tell you something. I tried to answer, but the fact that one of the people kneeling over me wanted to tell me something might have been the funniest thing that I had ever heard. Listen, you can't tell anyone about smoking in here, not your friends, not your teachers, no one. I was a little disappointed because this would have made an amazing story at show and tell, but if my father said not to tell anyone, well, he was the coolest dad ever. Even if he was a little different from the other fifth grade parents. For example, he didn't live with us all the time. Usually he lived in a dome penthouse in Chicago, which used to be Al Capone's speakeasy. I didn't know what that meant, but I could tell it was awesome. He also drove a sky blue Porsche convertible that might have been the coolest car ever that didn't talk, climb walls, or jump monster trains. Everybody loved that car, particularly in Gary, Indiana, where we drove so I could do my chores and earn my allowance. My chores were simple. All I had to do was go up to a house, knock, and exchange envelopes with whoever answered. Sometimes I had to go inside, which I didn't like because the people inside generally were not as happy as the ones answering the door. And they would say and offer me things that I knew I didn't want, even if I wasn't sure exactly what they were. Sometimes. Upon returning to the car, my father would sense my discomfort, and he would speak to what he assumed was the root cause of my unease. Never judge anyone by the color of their skin. I absolutely will not tolerate that. And he didn't. Not even that time when he wanted to leave his car outside the Ashkenaz Deli on Rush Street for five minutes, and the parking attendant told him he couldn't, and my dad said, what if I put a bullet in your fucking head, and the guy picked up a lead pipe, which was a problem because my dad kept his gun under the seat. As we drove away, dad handed me the fake gun he kept in the glove compartment and said, shoot him, Scotty, which only reinforced that he was the coolest dad ever. Something I never questioned right up until the great spiritual crisis of 1981. It was July and we were at the beach in Michigan City, Indiana when he asked, what is that around your neck? It's a mezuzah necklace. Mom's boyfriend, Stanley Cohn, gave it to me to commemorate my first steps upon the path of sacrifice and study that will ultimately lead to my becoming a man. 
I beg your pardon? My bar mitzvah, the religious ceremony in which I become a man in the eyes of God and the Jewish people. I know what it is. You're not having one. Yes, I am. No, you're not. And then he walked over, snatched the mezuzah off my neck, and threw it out over the water. And as I watched it somersault through the air before sinking into the murky depths of Lake Michigan, all I kept thinking was, holy shit, my father just threw any chance of my becoming a man out to sea. <laughs> my dad's girlfriend, Eleanor, walked over, and the two of us stood side by side looking out over the water. Eleanor was the nicest of my dad's girlfriends, always smiling and never getting mad when we accidentally called her by the wrong girlfriend's name. <laughs> Something that could lead to a severe beating depending upon my dad's state of mind. Relax, baby. You two will figure this out. I nodded and didn't resist when she put her arm around my shoulder. That was the last time I saw Eleanor, as not long after, she was convicted for shooting and killing her husband. But in the moment, I was so sure she knew something I didn't that her words steeled my determination to become a bar mitzvah. Literally, I thought about nothing else for weeks until it finally dawned on me. I didn't need to go to Hebrew school to become a man. I could teach myself just by doing whatever my dad did. After all, he was the coolest man on the planet. Having figured out a plan, I wrote down a list of things he'd already taught me about being a man. Number one, real men drove Porsches. This was an immediate challenge as all I had was a red Schwinn 10-speed that I called Firefox. And although there was no denying the awesomeness of that name, I knew it wasn't a Porsche, so that was a problem. Number two, have sex with as many different partners as you can, preferably in the same weekend. This was also a challenge as, to date, my sole physical interaction with the opposite sex consisted of once shyly placing my hand next to Emily Bloom's, but she removed hers and said, ew, upon noticing. <laughs> and number three, actually I didn't have a number three because number one and two made me feel so inadequate. My bar mitzvah came two years later at the same beach where my mezuzah was launched out to sea. It was night, and my brother, sister, and I were toasting marshmallows in a campfire while my dad and a girlfriend were getting high when my sister, for no discernible reason, announced, you better watch out, Dad. Now that Scott is getting taller and is taking Taekwondo, he doesn't have to listen to you anymore. Everyone else immediately quieted. I, on the other hand, grabbed my stomach and made a point of laughing as hard as I could, hoping to impress upon my dad just how ridiculous that whole statement was, while also wondering how I could be related to someone as stupid as my sister. <laughs> Is that right? My dad asked. No, I say, knowing it's not enough, but unable to come up with anything better. Do you know what happens if you ever pull that Taekwondo shit on me? Look at me. And my father, the coolest man on the planet, is pointing a gun at my chest. And the truth is, I am so scared that I cannot speak, so I do the only thing I can, which is to force myself not to cry, something that requires locking my, fight, my face into a smile worthy of the Joker. And it is absolutely the wrong thing to do. You think this is funny? I am confused, and I am frightened, and I am certain that the intensity of my grin is going to leave my face stuck like this forever. You think I won't shoot you? 
Actually, I think he might, but I'm not able to stop smiling, and he is determined to make me, and it is too dark for me to see him squeeze the trigger, but the sound of the gunshot and the flash from the muzzle come at almost the same time, but it's not until I realize that I'm not hit, that he shot over my shoulder, that I finally break down, sobbing and gasping, and now it is my father who is smiling, and I am filled with hate, to the point that I think about going for the gun and shooting him back without intentionally missing, but deep down I know I'm too afraid, so instead I lay there crying until finally I am able to to stop and make the decision that will shape the rest of my life. From this point forward, I will never cry again. My official rule number three of how to be a man. I decided the best way never to cry was to always be laughing. Because if you always laugh, there is no room for tears, which in itself is not an entirely atypical Jewish sentiment. So basically, I spend the next several years studying Saturday Night Live, Monty Python's Flying Circus, Eddie Murphy's Delirious, and My Two Dads. Although that last one was more because I had a crush on Stacey Keenan than for any actual comedic value. And maybe it is a reaction to several years of my nonstop laughing, or maybe to something completely unrelated. But at some point during my late teens with no explanation ever offered, my dad goes through a transformation too. Literally, within a period of months, he stops doing drugs, gets a job selling computers, moves into permanent housing, begins a monogamous relationship with this nice woman who would become my stepmother, and most importantly, decides to overcompensate for all that he has missed the last 15 years, to the point that when I'm 20, he presents me with a spreadsheet titled, How to Succeed at College, which basically can be broken down into believe in yourself, always be on time, and don't get anyone pregnant. <laughs> and I don't know if my dad was truly unaware or just didn't want to face why I had become who I am, but throughout my 20s and 30s, he only brought up my childhood a single time, and this is how it went. Scott, if you ever want to talk about anything from when I was sick, we can. Thanks, Dad. It kind of felt like one of us should offer the other a lifesaver, but I wasn't sure who would be the giver and who would be the receiver. But regardless, that's how we carried on, right until I had children of my own. There was something about going to the park and watching a man I recognized but never knew push my son and daughter on the swings that stirred up things in me that I didn't want to feel. Watching them run to the door with excitement while they shrieked, Papa, and seeing them hug him and the way he would close his eyes and smile like it was the best thing ever should have made me happy, and the fact that it didn't filled me with shame. In the end, it was the Chicago Bulls that broke us. I think we should all go to a Bulls game, my treat. They have all sorts of family activities these days. I felt like the way he said these days implied there was some sort of those days when he used to take his own children that I didn't remember. I don't think so, Dad. But they'll love it. I don't think it's a good idea. Of course it's a good idea. And I looked him in the eye in a way that I had not been able to since the night he pulled that gun and I said, go fuck yourself. And 30 years of repressed emotion vomited out of me in wave after wave of incoherent profanity. And the fact that he was looking at me with such hurt and disbelief only made me swear more. And part of me wanted to stop, but it wasn't something I could control. And just when I thought I was finally finished, he said, all this over a basketball game? Prompting a second eruption even more violent than the first that seemed to go on forever until finally it was over, leaving me weak 
and shaky and unable to do anything other than watch as my father turned and walked away. And I remember thinking how small and broken he looked and forcing myself not to feel sorry for him and wondering if he felt this way while I was sobbing on the beach. But to be honest, I have no idea if he even remembered that night. We reconciled a few months after. He said he missed his grandchildren too much to remain angry. Not too long after that, I received a call from his wife, the same woman he began dating those many years ago. Your dad's in the hospital. There's something wrong with his stomach. No one could tell us the cause, but a mass of arteries had grown over his liver, covering more than 85% of it. Still, the prognosis was hopeful. By cauterizing the main artery, it should cause all the others to shrink, leaving enough healthy liver that, the sur that surgery would be an option. I was with him when he died. A nurse was helping him stand when something inside him burst. I can't tell you if he meant to stare at me one last time or if that's just where his eyes landed as he fell to the bed and his life went out. Unsurprisingly, the hospital social worker was a bit put off when she asked, how are you doing? And I told her, better than my father in my best Groucho impression, but we are who we are. My stepmother, who is not Jewish, informed me that instead of Shiva, she wanted to hold a celebration of life and allow people to come up and share stories about my dad. I was shocked, not just by the number of people that asked to speak, but also by what they had to say, that my dad was caring and compassionate and would do anything for anyone that he cared about. Apparently, in the same way my dad missed out on my becoming a man, I missed out on his. And it is a week later, and I am lying next to my daughter in her bed, pleading with whatever powers that be to please just let her fall asleep. And I am almost certain that she has when she says in her tiny voice, Daddy, you're supposed to be sleeping. I have a question. Last one, or you're grounded till college. <laughs> when you die, can your spirit stay around to help me make hard decisions? And while part of me thinks this is a little bit morbid, most of me is beyond happy that my daughter might think that I am the coolest man on the planet, or at least cool enough that she wants to keep me around beyond the grave. Although, I would maybe like a little bit more sadness around the possibility of my dying. I mean, <laughs> is that really too much to ask? But before I can say anything, her voice fills with concern and she asks, are you crying, Dad? You never cry. And because we are who we are, I tell her, I'm not crying, I'm laughing. Because after I die, my spirit is going to fly around your room, pooping on your head so you never forget me. <laughs> and she pretends to be disgusted, and I hug her tightly, and neither of us falls asleep anytime soon. This story was produced by Ali Drum, curated by Amanda Delheimer, directed by Lexi Saunders, with music and sound design by Jazzology. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Leopardo Charitable Foundation, our 2018-2019 season sponsor, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flome, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this... This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.